they didn't give me a blackboard, so I had to bring my board. Teachers don't do well without uh, boards. If you don't mind, I'd like to start with a prayer. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, you are all good, deserving of all of our love. Thank you for your presence with us here and now. Help us to be docile to your Holy Spirit. May our time and effort together this evening help to inflame our love for you and intensify our desire to be one with you forever. We ask this of you in Jesus' name, and we pray through Mary's intercession as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The emotions are a topic that um, people of every age seem to benefit from. Um, you know, in times past, um, you probably heard, if it feels good to do it, the um, emotions were that, uh, uh, I mean, modern times are, if it feels good to do it, uh, emotions are like ruling us, or they're like in the driver's seat. But classically, like go back to St. Thomas, and um, there's always a little, uh, the emotions are good, but they have to be, um, you gotta be, gotta watch them. You gotta be careful, gotta keep them under check. So let's find out what they are. Technically, like philosophically, they would be referred to as the sense appetites. And appetite is a, a, a tendency toward. And so their sense appetites, so what that means is whatever we're sensing, we tend toward it if it's good, or we tend away from it if it's not good. So like if I had a black one here and I scratched the chalk, you boom, tend away from it. Um, but if all the people you walked in and you smelled this good food, you tend toward it. Um, the emotion or the ap sense of appetites are popularly called emotions, come from the Latin word ex movere. They, they're moving powers. And, and we all experience this. You know, the alarm goes off at 2 o'clock in the morning because it's waking you up to study for an exam. Oh, you're not going to be there. The, your emotions will move you, turn over, and go back to sleep. But if you're waking up for a um, going a long vacation that you've been looking forward to, boom, you jump right out of the vent. Um, being with people you like, your emotions move you in that direction. Going toward a test or a, something um, you don't feel good about, it's just the opposite. Your feelings keep you away from it. So they're moving powers. But the um, emotions are also called passions. And it, it comes from the Latin word passivus, so, um, where they're receptors, uh, in some ways, they're reactors. What that tells us is the emotions, um, they don't act first. Something else has to act, and then our emotions respond. And um, they don't instigate anything. Something triggers them. So if somebody makes a comment that's um, uh, offensive to you, that will trigger an emotion of, I dislike that. If somebody hands you flowers, oh, it'll trigger an emotion. That's actually probably why women want to like to look good, dress up. We want to trigger emotions um, in people, in people in men. Um, emotions, or the passions, they're feelings of the soul, not of the body. So like right now, you might be warm, you might be cold, you might be tired. Those are feelings of the body. But the emotions are feelings of the soul. So my, my anger, my despair, my love, uh, my aversion, my joy, those are feelings of the soul. But because a human being is a body-soul combination, whatever my soul feels, my body shares it. You know, there, I'm sure you've experienced it where um, you have to get up in front of a group and, and you're nervous about it. And so your soul is feeling um, a little fear well, your body can, sh can join in that. You know, you might see the person shaking, or you might get deep red, or uh, our bodies join in that feeling. Uh, the emotions actually have a, a very, can have a very powerful somatic um, effect, 
that protect on our bodies. So we call it psychosomatic. Um, when I was first teaching, I was being observed by a person who came from the college, sat in my classroom all day long while I was teaching. She said, at the end of the day, when we sat down, she said, oh, I'm so glad your voice calmed down. She said, it was so shrill and irritable for the beginning of the day. And, um, I was not aware of that at all. Um, people usually say my, my voice is mellow. It puts people, my kids to sleep. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so emotions can have that kind of effect on us. Very powerful. Their emotions are what um, a philosopher would say. They're ontologically good, but morally neutral. Ontologically means in themselves they're good. They're part of our nature. They're here to help us respond to whatever we're sensing, to the world around us. Um, they are, they're automatic. They're automatic responders. So I, so I have to, I don't, when somebody gives me a, says a, a comment that is um, meant to hurt me, I don't have to tell myself to be angry. The anger's there. It's automatic. So if a student is always causing trouble by, in my classroom, in the previous semester, walks into my new semester class and sits down, the emotion will be there. Oh, I don't like um, uh, it. Not, I'm not morally responsible for that, so I don't have to confess that. Um, it's out of my control. My emotion is out of my control. Because they're, they're, um, they're, automa they're automatic, they're spontaneous. And that's why emotions in themselves are morally neutral. However, what is under my control is how I act in response to that. So how I treat that kid, that's always a, a bit of a pain to me. How I treat him is a matter of moral, it's moral matter. In other words, it's something I might need to confess if I don't treat him well. So you know how Jesus says, um, uh, love, your, love your enemies? I don't know how many of you have enemies, but I don't have any designated enemies. But probably all of us have people that we don't like that much. Emotionally don't like. There's something about them that ooh, irritates us. That's nothing, we don't have to confess that. <laughs> that's not in the matter of the realm of sin. That's just, it's our, our study emotions responding to whatever's going on. <coughs> However, and this is why I think Jesus said, love your enemies. We must treat those people that we don't like with the greatest respect. And do whatever is good for them. There's once, uh, it's at the college level, I was teaching, it. I was presenting on the emotions, and a young man came to my office later and he said, um, he was very grateful for the, for the lecture, for the understanding about the emotions. He says, he's always felt guilty about being angry. Um, with regard to his dad. Apparently his dad was abusive to the kids, I guess, and to his wife, to his kid's mother. And, uh, and the kid always was, he dealt with his feelings of anger, and he felt like he was not um, fulfilling the fourth commandment. And so, so sorting through this, where the emotions fit and where our actions, what are we responsible for and what aren't we? It, it really helps to um, to know about this. Um, but what, what's, we have, a human being then has two moving powers in us. We have these emotions that move us on the sense level. But we have higher powers. We have an intellect and a will. And those are our rational powers. They, they are what distinguish us from animals, brute animals. It's with our intellect we can understand, and with our will we can freely choose what I want to do. And so if you want to be uh, emotionally healthy, you want to allow the emotions to surface. In other words, don't keep them down, don't stifle, don't stifle them. Uh, for example, you know, if I had to deal with a little kid, if I was a parent or, or a teacher of little kids, and let's say that um, my son was, uh, was one of those kids, and he's like four years old, and, and he's fighting with this other kid. He's mad and he throws his car, throw the car at him. And I come up and I, and I said, I'm, it would be really wrong, not good for me, to do this to this kid. Said, Tommy, it's bad of you to be angry. You stop that being angry. 
that's not a good thing to do to that kid. Um, because the anger is not in control. The anger is just an emotion. What I should say is, Tommy, what's going on? I mean, he explains to me. And then I say, Tommy, I, I understand why you're angry. I'd get angry too, probably, if somebody took my toy. But you don't throw to your toys when you're angry. You don't, you don't fight somebody when you're, um, that this is not the way to do it. How do we, how should we, what should you do when you're angry, Tommy? Let's talk about that, you know? But the idea is, you make a distinction between the emotion and the act. The emotion that you cannot control, but the action that you can. And the reason why um, you don't ever want anybody to think emotions are bad in themselves is precisely because they're automatic. They're going to be there. And so if you think, if a, a person, particularly a younger one, gets the idea that emotion's bad, then he'll actually have emotion fighting emotion, and all that he'll have to keep squelched or repressed. Um, and you turn into a neurotic. Neurotic means you're emotionally sick. You don't want that. You want to be emotionally healthy. To be emotionally healthy, you gotta let the emotions surface. And that doesn't mean you have to express it. <laughs> it just means let your intellect and will know what's going on. So I find out, oh, let's say you're a married, married man, okay? And you, you see a woman, your senses, you experience a woman who's very attractive to you. Make a note of that. Whoa, I find her very attractive. Um, I like her. And then your will needs to decide, but I don't want to be tempted to be unfaithful to my wife. And so therefore, I'm going to act or um, move in a way so that I don't have to encounter her very often. Yeah. My point is, there's nothing wrong with the emotion. But the intellect of the will has to control it. Has to control our actions, what we do in light of those emotions, if we're going to be healthy. Okay. For my visuals here. This is... Um, there are, there are actually two sense appetites. And then the emotions are movements of a sense appetite. So the first one is the concupiscible appetite. The concupiscible appetite has, it's the appetite that moves toward a good or an easy uh, evil. I mean, easy good or an easy evil. Okay, let me explain. So it starts with this. Um, if something I'm sensing, I perceive as good, this emotion of love kicks in right away. If love's too strong, it could be like, if you like. Love, like, same thing. If what I love is not, is not here, I have the absence of what I love. In other words, evil is the absence of the good. Evil, then it'll kick in. So I'm a teacher that I like no, I like peaceful, orderly classrooms. If I walk into the classroom and it's not peaceful and orderly, there will be a certain dislike, hate <laughs> that will arise. <laughs> um, just natural, normal response to some evil. You might not like the you know the chalk scratching on the board. I, I hate that sound. We're talking about a response to something we're sensing. Okay. The next emotion that kicks in after love is if what I love is not actually here, then the next emotion that kicks in is desire. I want it. So I, I use it for kids, you know, um, they want the end of the class or they want the end of the school day, but it's not here yet. We've got another 45 minutes. So what kicks in? Desire. I can hardly wait for the end of the school year or, class, or the end of the school day. Desire kicks in. When the good that we love or desire, love and desire, we actually are enjoying, then we experience pleasure or joy. Now there's a difference between pleasure and joy. Pleasure, um, Thomas Dubay explains this really well. Um, pleasure is a response to a material good. Like the hamburger I had, it was a very pleasurable um, meal. It tasted good. It's, it's a response to something material. And something material is limited in duration. In other words, that hamburger came to an end. Um, and if it was ice cream, I would want it to be unending. 
But that tends to happen with material things. It comes to an end, and it's like, I want more. Um, material things, also pleasure, because it, because there's, it's a response to material things, uh, they can be taken away from us. So if somebody were to take that hamburger before it's finished, it was like, oh, you know, it can be taken away from us. Um, also, material things and pleasure tend to tie us down to the things of this earth. Because now I'm thinking about what's the next hamburger, you know? Or, um, or what's the next ice cream? I get tied down. Um, and it can, I can easily like, pick out. I got one bowl of ice cream, and I, oh man, I like another bowl. The tendency is to go more and more and more. Joy is not like that. Joy is a response to intellectual or spiritual goods, like um, a beautiful sunset, hmm. or conversation with a friend, or uh, being present at the mass, an <laughs> experience of prayer, a spiritual good, an intellectual good. And joy, because it's spiritual, it can be taken away. And also, joy tends to not, it doesn't tie us down to this material world. It kind of liberates us, frees us for, um, for, for the, the, the highest joys. <coughs> so there's a difference. You've got to be careful of, to some extent, of the pleasures. Because our hearts get tied down quite, quite quickly, quite easily. All right, I've got to tell you well, one more thing before. The other sense appetite is the irascible appetite. And there are five movements of the irrational, irascible appetite. And the difference between concupiscible and irascible is that these respond, these are these kick in when the um, good or the evil becomes difficult. So for example, let's say I would love to have a nursing degree. I'd love that. But I don't have it right now. And so desire kicks in. Oh, okay, I'm going to get a nursing degree. I'm going to sign up for this class, go to the school and get this, sign up for this class. So I'm in that class, and all of a sudden, I'm reading the textbook, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's not making any sense. I hear the lectures, oh man, they're not speaking English. Um, there's it's just, it's really rough. I, I get a quiz back, or a test back, and it's like, oh, low grades. All of a sudden, that good that I loved, the degree, has now become difficult. And so, da -da -da, these emotions come to the help. Um, we're talking about a good, uh, the good here. Either hope or despair will be um, aroused to the good, to the difficult good. What will determine whether it's love or just, I mean, whether it's hope or despair? It's not like your choice. Remember, emotions are automatic. So what might make hope kick in? Well, I, I saw this low grade, but um, this person in class said there's a study group. Oh, it's for his home. Um, or I went by and talked to the teacher, and oh, he was so kind. He, uh, he said, come by any time for questions. Ooh, that instills hope. Or the opposite. Um, despair could kick in. Um, I got this test back, it was terrible. Uh, I asked about study groups, there are none around. I went to see the teacher, and ooh, I'm not going to go see him again. Um, so despair kicks in. It's, it's like something, something else going on, okay? But now this is where I want you to see why you don't act on the emotions. They're just telling you how you're responding to what's going on. What needs to happen, we need to surface to the intellect. So the intellect can like size up the situation. So the intellect says, oh, I'm beginning to feel despair. I feel like quitting. And then the intellect thinks, well, it's only the second day of class. Maybe I should wait. The intellect needs to decide that, not the emotions. Um, I, I said all of these emotions, all of them, are um, good in themselves. They're naturally good. They're helping us to respond to what's going on. So what, what could be good about despair? This will be really clear for you, I think. Let's take like a little freshman girl comes to high school and, and she gets a crush on this guy. <gasps> he's everything I've ever wanted, you know. And so she thinks about him all the time. Or 
goes and wants to stand by his locker. Everything's about this guy. And he knows she exists, but he doesn't care at all. And this goes on a whole full year. She just has her heart set on him. At some point, it would be very good for her to despair of having that relationship. So she can stop and get on with her life, you know? There's a time when it makes sense to despair. Like maybe I need to despair with regard to a nursing degree. Perhaps. Maybe that's not, I don't have the intelligence for it. Perhaps. But maybe they'll have to decide it. But the despair helps. It helps to move us. Same here. Courage, fear, and anger, they're all responses to the difficult evil. Um, nothing wrong with them. It's good to fear real evil. Good to fear sin. Good to fear the devil. Not ultimately, you know, Jesus is more powerful. But even anger is good. You know what anger is good for? It helps us to respond to evil. You know, like, um, if you were working in a, an office and a boss treated this one person in the office really badly, and it, it just made you angry every time you saw the way you treated this person. Um, the anger is there to help you. To do what? To address the situation. To fight the evil. What you need to do, though, is always, never, ever, ever put the emotions in the driver's seat. It's always got to be the intellect in the driver's seat. And so when you, when you get angry, like at your boss, it's not um, the control. In other words, they like realize, I am mad at the way he treats this person. Um, so what's the reasonable thing to do in, in light of my anger? I think I'll make an appointment for Sina. I will talk to him. Now, the, I, the thing is, sometimes people are so afraid of, of the emotions, like of, of anger, that, oh, I'm going to wait till it calms down. And they might wait till it's so calm, the anger's no longer there, they don't have the energy they need to go do something very difficult, like talk to a boss, in criticism. And so what you need to do is let the anger be there to help you, but never do it unless the intellect is in control. And so you go in and say, I'm really angry about the, about the way you treat. You know, you do it in a reasonable, loving way. But the anger's a good thing. Since when good people do nothing, evil flourishes. So anger's the end. Even scripture says, be angry, but sin not. So it's not, don't, don't fear any of these emotions. They're good. They're not put them there for us to use. To, to, um, to move ourselves toward the good and away from evil. It's actually, um, we want to move full force. Full force, not just with our intellects and will, wills, but also with, with our emotions toward the good, doing the good. So you know, like when I take, if I were to reach out and help the poor, um, just with my will, um, I'm not as fully there as it, not, it wouldn't be as good as if I did it both will and my emotions. In other words, I really love the poor, emotionally love them, as well as my will working for them. It's not just, oh, I know this is the thing to do, so I'm going to do it. But I actually love it. Same with fighting evil. It's not, well, yes, it's a bad thing, abortion's a bad thing, I'm going to fight against it, okay? Well, where's the passion? Where's the emotion? Full force against evil, for, full force toward the good. Okay, now, this is um, the, the, the climax of my thing, of my job. Um, once I learned about these emotions, see how they go, they go from love to desire to play or pleasure to joy. There's like a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a plan to it. There's a reason for it. It's logical. It's reasonable. You ever see a kid when he's spoiled? He goes into the store, and this is how they work. This is the kid, Mama, 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 oh, I love that toy. Mama, please, can I have this toy? Please, please. Mama, I love it. Please, can I have it? Please, please, please. Mama buys it, and he has the pleasure of the toy for a minute or two, and he says, another toy. Mama, Mama, I love it, I love it. Please, please, can I have it, please? And she gets it, and um, he enjoys it for a minute or two. Mama, Mama, and you know, the cycle continues. You know what would be better if you want to 
curve and spoily. That's when this happens. Mama, Mama, I love it. Please, 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 can I have it? Please, please. Mom looks at it and says, oh, it costs $10. Hmm. Well, you get a dollar a week. You know, if you really want this toy, then save your allowance every week. And in 10 weeks, oh, that's around your birthday time, we'll come back and buy it. Oh. So now what's the kid do? Well, it all depends. <laughs> I mean, if he starts to save his money, his desire will increase and increase and increase as the weeks go by. And, and then when he gets the toy, it won't be so quickly discarded. Because the desire has built up, so too will the pleasure or the joy that he experiences. You see this in other things. Have you guys ever eaten when you're hungry? It's very rare, I think, for Americans to eat when we're hungry. We just eat. <laughs> we just eat for the same eating. Um, but if you ever eat when you're hungry, you know what, you know what the food tastes like? Gourmet. It's wonderful. You just a peanut butter sandwich when you're hungry is like, wow. So you guys are, you know what I'm talking about? A drink of water when you're really thirsty, really thirsty. It's like, wow, there's nothing better. And I think it's because our desire has increased. The more the desire, the more the joy and the pleasure. You know, I wonder about this even with regard to, um, to dating and marriage. There was a, a woman I knew, she was um, living with her boyfriend before they were married. And at the marriage, they eventually planned to you know, set the date for a few months away. And she said this one time to somebody, I can hardly wait for the big day. And I remember thinking, hardly wait for what? A cake? A party? You know, you're already living the, the marital life, um, going through the motions anyway. So what are you waiting? I mean, what's the big joy? What's going to really be? Anyway, they had their party eventually, their, their marriage and their, their party. But I compare that to somebody, as a young couple um, I went to graduate school with, and um, they're both uh, studying philosophy, touristic philosophy, and they're the kind of people that do I'd seen them at daily mass at the chapel on, on campus. Um, they're a lovely couple. And um, I knew they were morally upright, at least from what I know. Um, and, uh, and they were engaged and, uh, and married. I wasn't able to be here at their wedding. But I remember imagining, whoa, whoa. I'm sure their desire for each other was increasing day by day by day. I guess that's what love does. Um, the desire will increase. And I, I just imagine, ooh, what joy and pleasure on their wedding day, when for the very first time, they give themselves totally to each other. No comparison in the amount of joy or pleasure, you know, as in, with regard to that other, the couple that we were already living together. Um, um, one other thing, um, once when I was new to a school, no, I wasn't new, I was old there, and uh, there was a new sister, a sister was new to the school, and at this particular school, they would also always serve steak dinners at the very beginning, at the family association, serve steak dinners to the faculty. And so we told the sister, there's going to be a steak dinner coming, and um, that evening when we, um, we were at uh, the table, and she was like in a corner to me and there were other lady people around and mistakes came and it wasn't too long into the meal. I looked over at her plate and the steak was gone. And I looked at her and she blushed. And she said, oh, I didn't eat anything all day. I, I just couldn't wait for the steak. And um, I, anyway, I tried to not get my going. And I, my steak was still there and there was a, uh, I hadn't fasted all day like she did. She was really looking forward to that steak, and she took great joy in it. Um, I had nibbled throughout the day, and no big deal. Uh, but it, it kind of taught me something. Boy, she sacrificed that whole day for a piece of steak. Um, so you see this, um, 
do you see this in religious, I mean, in, in, a, in, in, in life, in the material life, the secular world? Do we, do we see this at all? Is the same principle about increasing the desire, the joy increases, is it in the spiritual realm? Well, I, I actually think it is. Do you know, you know what we Catholics believe? We believe that um, Jesus Christ has saved us. He paid the price for our sin. It's, it's a done deal as far as he, he saved us. Do you ever wonder why? I mean, why are we still here? You know, what's going on? Why are we still here if he's already saved us? I, have, I think it has something to do with building this desire. Um, I mean, you know, in the, in the secular world, you don't ever hear people say, I can hardly wait to die. People don't usually talk about it. It's not like a, I'm eager to die. And then when they die, you don't normally, um, when there's an outshot, like unexpected death, um, you know, do you ever hear people's response? It's like, oh, too bad. Well, in the convent, it's kind of like that too. No one walks around saying, I can hardly wait to die. Um, and when people die, oftentimes it's like, oh, too bad. But there was this one sister, and it was different for her. Um, she was elderly, and she had grown blind in her old age. And she lived on the wing of our mother house where the infirm sisters lived. And on that wing, there's a little chapel, so the sisters don't have to go far to get to the Lord's Eucharistic presence. And this little sister, um, you can only see her like in the chap chapel, um, to or from the chapel, but she like, practically lived there. And if you did see her coming in or going out and you talked to her, she'd be talking about Jesus or Mary or the saints or something heavenly. Not like other sisters who were talking about what's coming for lunch, or what the weather's like, or whatever else is there is to talk about secularly. Her mind was always, seemed, always seemed there. Well, this one day, I stopped at the little chapel, and uh, she was praying, so I, I, I prayed a rosary with her. And uh, then I, I made a deal with her. I said, sister, whichever one of us dies first, that one will pray for the other one. And uh, this is part of um, <laughs> she was elderly, you know, and she's and um, so I didn't want her though to think I was pushing her into the grave. And so I said, so I gave, I said, so if I die first, and with that her, her expression got really sad. Oh, you don't. And she says, you don't think um, you don't think he's gonna leave me here much longer, do you? And oh, she's talking about me. She's, I said, no, no, I'm sure they'll take you pretty soon. <laughs> anyway, uh, and just talking to like, wow, she's looking forward. She can hardly wait. And um, I remember when she did die, it, we weren't expecting her death. Usually when we're expecting a sister's death, we sit at their bedside on day and night. Um, but she just fell over dead this one day. And I remember when it was announced to the sisters, uh, the response was not, oh no. It was, whoa. She finally has what she long has been longing for. Her desire had, had built up so much. Um, so because her desire was so great, I had a feeling her joy was outstanding. Um, and it, it makes me think, um, you know, Catholics, we, the, the church does have a teaching that in heaven, everyone's going to be fully satisfied, fully. And if you consider us like we're bases, we're going to be filled to the brim with, with joy. But there's another part of that teaching. We're all we're going to be different sized bases. Some are smaller bases filled to the brim. Some are big bases filled to the brim. I never really liked that teaching. Because I have a feeling I'm a small base, I often think, Lord, why did you make me a big base? But since learning this, you know what I think? I think I bear some responsibility for the size base I am. In other words, how much have I cultivated a desire for heaven, for God? 
feelings? Or am I setting my heart, picking out on the good things of this earth? So I'm not even thinking about him. Anyway, ever since I, I, I've heard about that, or I've thought about all this, I, I've listened more closely to the prayers that the church prays and asks, you know, and oftentimes she'll say, Lord, increase our desire for you. Yeah, amen. Increase my desire for you, Lord. I think of that sister, you know, she fasted all day long from good, from good food for the sake of a steak. I think, what am I doing to prepare for the heavenly banquet? Or am I too busy digging out on the things that are good here? That I, I don't even think about them. I really need to increase my desire. Um, um, I should tell you too, um, St. Augustine, um, over and over again in his writings, he'll write about, he says this, the entire Christian life is an exercise of holy desire. We don't have right now uh, the end. We don't have the Lord. We don't have him. But precisely, he had, he's left us in a state where we don't have it fully, precisely so that we can increase our desire. And St. Augustine said, well, our entire Christian life is simply an exercise in building this desire. So that um, someday we'll take supreme joy in what we have been desiring. And so, in conclusion, um, the great command, greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, with everything about you. Set your heart, set our hearts on Him, and um, and feed, build the desire day by day. Um, the Lord said, "What is this?" He said, "This make yourself a capacity, and I will make myself a torrent. He will more than fill us, but it is for our desire." Amen. Questions? Really good. Um, the question is whether it's reasonable to be fearful of this particular thing that you're fearful of. Like um, a kid might be afraid of, of being in the dark room, and what the parents are trying to convince them of is there's nothing to be afraid of here. So they're trying. The parents are trying to bring reason to to help help the kid deal with the, the emotion of fear. Hopefully, once reason comes, the fear will dissipate because there is nothing to fear in that dark room. However, I think you'd be crazy to have no fear. Um, you ought to fear, fear evil, fear, um, fear, I would fear, um, but, but, uh, fear sin, because it's my fear that, um, fear of sin that would make me turn to the Lord. Lord, help, help me in my weakness, help me. Um, so I, I think the, I think there are things that are reasonably people want to fear. Like a small child, you would want them to fear, let's say he can't swim, he ought, a little fear of the pool in the backyard, you know, the water is not so bad. A little kid being fearful of the busy street in the front, you know, in front of his house, a little fear of that is not unreasonable, it's, it's kind of good. For kids to have a little bit of fear of strangers, you know, pulling up in cars, that's okay. Um, and I don't think, I think there's, there are things to reasonably be fear, fearful of. Ultimately, with, yes, with God on our side, with the Lord with us, who can be against us, ultimately, yeah. 
Um, but um, I think it's our fear that can pull us or move us to the Lord, grab, calling out for His help. Anybody else? How culpable are we in shaping our emotional responses? Good question. How culpable are we in shaping our emotional responses? Um, it, always our culpability depends um, on our knowledge. And so you might be more culpable after this talk than you were before. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, you know, a child, they say that um, we learn how to deal with our emotions largely by watching the examples of the adults around us. And so this is why parents in particular have a terrific responsibility, teachers have a terrific response, any adult has a responsibility around kids to show them how do you, how do you respond when you're angry, when you're fearful, when you have a dislike, how do you, how do you reasonably respond? Um, but let's say a kid was raised by parents who do not handle their emotions well. And so he doesn't, he, the kid also doesn't handle his emotions well, because that's what he's learning. Um, my guess is that at age four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, perhaps, he probably isn't very culpable, because um, he's so largely shaped um, by the adults around him. However, when, he, you know, when he's 14, 18, 21, 30, and he's still um, not controlling his emotions well, um, I, his responsibility, his culpability increases simply because of a, of a, like of a natural law. And have, you, have you looked out? And have you, um, do you realize you're more comfortable about being around people who aren't losing their emotions? You know, maybe I didn't do something about it. You know? So have you done something to fix you know? Fix it, or have you have you looked at getting some help? I guess, but it's not easy for somebody like me or somebody on the outside to make a judgment about somebody's culpability. That's really for for the Lord to make the decision. That I I would just simply say we need to do our best. God is um he's very fair. He won't hold us responsible for what we don't have the ability to overcome. But um, I guess that's all I'm saying. Is, uh, but His grace is is very abundant, and he, His grace can help us overcome all. So that, like a kid who, who realizes I am a mess, and it might largely be due to my family environment. I'm an emotional mess, and largely due to my family environment. Seek healing from the Lord. Pray. Um, Maybe read, study a little bit about the emotions, see what can be done. Um, so there, there are elements of getting help too, but I think you, bear, you can bear some responsibility for when they're older to get that help. Anybody else? Um, you had mentioned in your talk um, about being weary when you have emotions in the driver's seat. So I was thinking particularly in marriage or close relationships, like if that happens, um, how should you be addressing it? Or like at what point, you know, if someone else is offending you, like how, like when do you kind of step in? When somebody else is offending you? Yeah. Like kind of putting their emotions in the driver's seat. Um, actually, marriage is a great, um, a great example of you don't want, it's, it's disastrous if the emotions are in the driver's seat with regard to marriage because I don't think you can actually um, say the vow with, um, with the truthfulness or with, uh, with the control that the vow needs. In other words, you don't say on your marriage day, on your wedding day, I will be true to you um, as long as I feel like it um, or as long as I'm feeling good about you. In other words, as long as my emotions are positive, I'm with you. Um, you know how dangerous that is? That could be a day, could be a week, could be a month, and emotions go. Um, we often say, like in the honeymoon, the honeymoons, I mean, in the wedding, in the marriage, the honeymoon's time is a time usually when the emotions are high and things are going great. 
But at some point, when you, get, you see the faults and the weaknesses of one another, the end is, oh my gosh. The emotions die down. That's when, um, if there's all, it's all there was was emotion, a person can say, well, we fell out of love. Yeah, I understand that. Emotions come and they go. And we don't have control. But there needs to be much more. There needs to be a higher kind of a law um, for marriage. There really needs to be a higher kind of love for anything that is genuinely human love. And that higher kind of love is a commitment of the will. And that's what the marital vow is, is I, no matter how I feel about you, that's the good times and bad, sickness and health, whether I'm feeling good about you or not, I will stick with you. I will do what is good for you, no matter what. But hopefully, long before the wedding, you've tested each other with regards to love. Um, in other words, a sign of real love is itself a sacrifice. Not, I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm, this must be wonderful. Yeah, the sign of love is, is he willing to, to deny himself, to do hard things for me? Has he seen me at my worst when the emotions are not revved up? And he still hangs in there with me. He still cares for me. Wow. So it's very, very important, I think, um, particularly with regard to marriage, but also any genuine friendship. Test the love. Is it the kind of love that, uh, that doesn't depend on emotion? Because that's precisely why emotion is so fickle. Uh, a person doesn't have control. The, you know, you've heard people say, well, we fell in love. It was love at first sight. Amen. I understand that. That's the emotional love. He looks good. You know? He's a hunk. Whoa. First, first sight. That can happen. But that kind of love goes just as quickly. Gone. Um, and so the, the first sight, is, it's almost like emotional love is like the spark that gets you interested in each other, you know, that moves you toward each other. But there's a much more noble kind of love. The love that a human being is capable of. It's a love where I know this person, good and bad. I know the faults, the weaknesses, um, the strengths. The <coughs> I love him, the person. And what I mean by that is um, there's a commitment of my will. I will stick by you, no matter what. No matter what. Um, so probably not until you have that confidence that the other person has that kind of love for you should you entrust yourself to them in marriage. Because, see, this is what I think is so great. Like at our school, John Paul the Great, um, the kids learn their freshman year about these emotions. And I think it's really good because it helps the kids to see you know, this will kick in, emotions will kick in real quickly in their teenage years, you know, and they get their crushes and all that. But once they realize this is, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely kind of love. I mean, we can just feel so good when it's here. But it's so cheap. <laughs> it's so cheap. Here today, gone tomorrow. So I, the kids, I hope, they, what I want them to do is work for a higher love. Um, don't settle for just the emotional. Um, build and cultivate the kind of love where the sign of it is self-sacrifice. Uh, the sign of it is um, a, a concern, a giving of yourself for the good of the other. That's what's supposed to happen. So I don't know if that answered your question, but knowing those two kinds of love are very important. Sports team? Yeah, or, or for sports team, obviously, like a relationship, or where um, you yeah. can talk about it, you can be with somebody else and teach the same thing, you can be passionate about it. Does that also provide you with some sort of joy? Oh, surely. Um, it's the kind of um, love you have. Love is that emotional response for a good. For a good. So is there something good about a, a political party? Perhaps. 